Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. IFSTA is dedicated to advancing firefighting techniques and safety through the creation of our manuals, instructor resources, and student study materials. Our high-quality, technically accurate, and affordable training content has made us a fire service leader. Visit us at ifsta.org for more information. Welcome to Fire Service Court Video. <laughs> I am Brad Pinsky and I'm your host for this edition. With me today, I have John Murphy and Kurt Ferrone. Missing, but possibly in action, I might soon have uh, Chip Comstock joining us. And today we're going to discuss a really tough issue. And it's an issue that has come up. I can't get into too many specifics in my practice. And as we're talking here uh, before the show starts, I said, God, I have this really weird issue. And what do we do? So I'm going to pose this. So we all learn in every EMT course, in every fire course, what is our obligation to go into a scene of danger that's, and I don't mean dangerous because there's fire or dangerous because there's communicable diseases, but I mean danger because our lives could be threatened. There's people with guns or knives or the, you know, the scene is out of control or we have a riot scene happening, right? What is our obligation as first responders to respond in? And we're going to have a couple of you know, vantage points. John certainly is going to talk about the public perception. We're going to talk about public duty doctrine. So let me start with a scenario, right? Let's, let's have this scenario. So we have a scenario. Um, we'll take it on the EMS side or fire slash EMS side, if you want. And we have uh, two, a fire, fire department's ambulance called to a scene. The scene's a house. It's late at night. No police are arriving yet. The scene is for a person with difficulty breathing, and they are inside the house. Upon entering the house for the moment, the firefighters become justifiably concerned for their lives that they're walking into a dangerous situation. They see the patient clearly inside, right? Not able to grab and run, I guess, but let's say clearly inside, the patient is in fact having severe difficulty breathing and Yet, there's a very hostile crowd. It looks dangerous. There's maybe weapons or knives or guns that people are seeing, but nonetheless, a very um, dangerous scene, and they feel very uncomfortable, and they back out and call the police. Let us talk about their liability in this scene. Let's start with Kurt. Well, I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, lot of considerations here. Um, in terms of practical duty, uh, we our duty ultimately is to follow our policies. And so if our policies say that we're to withdraw, if we have an unstable scene, an unsecure scene, we're to withdraw, our, our duty there is to withdraw. Um, in terms of our duty to the patient, that's not going to, the patient isn't going to feel all that uh, good that we've, we did that. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, whether you call it an administrative duty, our, our duty uh, to the department, uh, I think, is to follow the policies. And if the policies say you back out, you back out. Now, um, we've got this legal issue that we've got to deal with. What's the consequence if we if we back out, the patient dies? Uh, what's the consequence if we stay in there and now we precipitate some sort of a big hostage type event where other people are killed and the building is ends up in flames and and you know all of this because we didn't follow our policies all sorts of liability traps in there the the good news is that um as as government uh, you know workers uh sovereign immunity is going to offer us some some degree of protection what isn't going to be covered by sovereign immunity. It's probably going to be protected by um, the public duty doctrine. Uh, and so I, I think liability-wise, uh, we're going to be okay. It's not great, and we're probably going to be sued, but at the end of a five- to seven-year ordeal, we're, we're hopefully not going to be held liable, and probably it'll be settled somewhere along the line. So getting to a theme that I just find myself 
advocating more and more, we should not use liability as a justification for our decision-making at the scene, because it's so hard to predict and say, oh my God, we're going to be liable if we do this. Yeah, you're going to, you could be liable if you do this. You could be liable if you do that. Let's think all that stuff through. That's not bad to think about, but let's set up our policy so that we're going to get the best outcome we possibly can. Uh, understanding that there's going to have to be some um, decision-making that takes place that can't be forethought ahead of time in through policy. So I think we don't want to be dictating our operational decision-making based solely on liability because, uh, frankly, a lot of times we're going to be immune. So if we have immunity, does that mean we can do whatever we want to do? No, that's right. that's crazy. We, again, we shouldn't be using just liability as a barometer for what we should be doing. Now, of course, you know, if we're a private ambulance company, whether for profit or not for profit, a lot of our immunities may go away. We don't have the public duty doctrine, right? We're not performing a public duty. But I do think we have to have a policy on this, right? We should not be. And, and in fact, I, I'm guessing we would probably protect our people, not only physically by saying, don't go into an unreasonably dangerous scenario, but also... Mm-hmm. Um, we'd be protecting them by saying, hey, we were just following right the, the policy that we came up with. But John, what po- types of policy considerations would you or terms of the policy would you put into it? <clears throat> well, I sort of tongue in cheek. I always look at the Monty Python movies and the, <clears throat> the sort of their runaway policy when they're faced with um, horses being flung over the castle walls. Um, I, you know, you're you're sort of taking you're taking a look, I think, in, in some long-time experience historically is that there's a number of court cases out there that I think we need to be aware of that, you know, places, um, um, you know, paramedics and first responders in harm's way, um, either intentionally or unintentionally. And so I think, you know, when you're drafting a policy, you need to kind of look around at, you know, what the situation is in your community, first of all. And I think that you and you three of us have been in the business long enough to see that there's been a huge shift in uh, public attitude towards fire and EMS and police. And, and it's not always a friendly scenario. So I think we need to, you know, kind of take a look at crafting a policy by teaching your responders about situational awareness. What's, what's a healthy scene? What's an unhealthy scene? What's a stable scene? What's unstable? And Maybe as you go through the policy development, you start to train your people into that that sort of recognition. I think the other is that, you know, as we're medical providers, you know, we're bound by, um, you know, the first do no harm sort of policy. And um, it kind of creates a, a scenario of, is it self-preservation? Do we make sure that we have the adequate policies in place? And do we have adequate backup in our community that can help us? Uh, you know, mostly in the form of police. But as we kind of take a look across the country, you know, even in my community, I, we, I went to the public safety committee meeting the other night, and there's only like 2.4 officers on in a 24-hour period of time for a population that's, you know, 30,000 people, and we're seeing increasing crime. And so the expectations that that I have for my agency now, because, you know, now I'm an elected official, I got to have some modicum of responsibility is to take a look at, you know, what's my available resource when I'm planning these policies on protecting my, my firefighters. The other is, I think that there's an an expectation, um, either real or not, that we as first responders have an opportunity or an obligation, I guess, is to go take care of the patient or patients, um, even though we're in these sort of hostile environments. And I think part of that policy um, ought to involve, you know, how to de-escalate um, a situation that you get into, um, you know, to see Grandma Smith or the baby that we talked about earlier or whoever, and all of a sudden, you know, sort of the, the temperature of the crowd goes up. And, and how do we extract ourselves out of there um, uh, safely, you know, without, you know, causing due harm. And the other, the other thing that, you know, you, we talked about prior to this getting recorded is, you know, do you bring the patient out with you or do you leave the patient in there, retreat, get to a safe area and then wait for resources to come in. And, you know, the, and the outcomes may not, may not always be good. And I, and I think the last part of that is that, you know, the policy needs to be 
reviewed periodically, kind of take a look at, again, what the temperature of your community is and what available resources are. And then I think there's an expectation as well as we've seen with some of the, like George Floyd and um, Elijah McClain cases and stuff like that is, is that we get into scenarios where there are police there and they're not always friendly, <laughs> even to the responders. Uh, and so I think that they, we need to kind of work with the police and other responding agencies um, in, the, in the development of the policy and before it gets you know, finally incorporated. Yeah. So I, I will add, I'll kind of pick up from where you were, John. It seems to me that a good response policy would have certain components, right, that address those topics, such as, you know, because you mentioned some like race-based issues. And I think we should have a policy that says something like, we will not take into consideration, you know, protected classes, race, gender, age. We won't make presumptions necessarily about people right? But we will consider our safety. We'll consider whether weapons may be present. But one of the things when I was having this conversation a while ago is with some another person, they said, you know, we run into fire. And by the way, there's some weird thing going on behind us. Yeah. I, I I, don't know what it is. It's some it's, sort of feedback. Yeah, yeah. I think well, I'm, I'm seeing another screen here. And I think Chip may be trying to get on and maybe Mark can kind of take him off the air there. Yeah, mute him, mute him. Um, so the, the things that I'm here is, well, wait a minute, we run into fire all the time. We repel down buildings, we go into swift water, but to me, those are predictable, even a house on fire, right? We generally know how building construction is, how long a fire should last as best we can. We can make some reasonable predictions about fire behavior right? But we can't make a reasonable prediction about violent people or mentally unstable people, right? Which starts getting us into, you know, should we be giving ketamine and stuff? But let's hold off on that. Um, but even when we go to a place and somebody says, well, it's unsafe, right? Everyone says we just rush in. So I don't find a lot of tolerance from people when we say we're going to stand outside until the scene is safe, until the police get there, we're, you know, we're going to be sued for, oh, you stood outside. Worse, you know, I, we always tell people, and I'm sure your department's do the same, you stage around the corner, right? Turn your lights off, stage around the corner until the police say it's safe to go in. Well, that's great, right? Because you should, because that otherwise they'll run out to the vehicle and maybe put you in danger. But that's great, except we may not know it's dangerous. You may walk in, be like, whoa, and, and back out. The, the reason this came up that I want to tell our viewers generically is because I now have a case where this exact same thing happened. The EMS provider walks out, backs out, and is now being charged, not sued, but charged by the state for basically abandoning a patient while protecting their own safety. And I'm, I'm irate because the first thing we learn in EMT course and probably you know our firefighter courses is scene safety is paramount. So that's great until you're charged or sued, right? And the public doesn't seem to accept that. So, you know, we may have protections, as Kurt says, maybe we can get some policies in place, but is it a real protection? I mean, what are we really telling our firefighters? And, and Kurt, as, as, you know, chief, past chief uh, what, what are we telling our firefighters what their obligations are? Well, I, one of the things I, uh, that struck me is that we're not training our firefighters. We're kind of letting them figure it out on their own. And we're not thinking this stuff through with them in training and, and saying, what are we going to do? And we give them the, uh, the scenarios kind of at either end of the field, either, either end of the, you know, the end zones there. And we're playing most of the game in the middle. So, you know, if it's this situation, you do one thing. If it's this situation, you do the other. But, you know, how about in between the two goalposts uh, that where where most of the incidents are? Um, and, and I go back to my earlier comment just about a policy that <clears throat> if the department had a policy on scene security and the items in that policy uh, reference what that EMT or that medic should be considering, then that should provide him some protection from e whether it's a, a state criminal charge, whether it's a state administrative disciplinary charge for his, on his uh, EMS license, it's going to provide some protection because they're saying, look, I'm following my organization's policy. If you have an issue, 
take it up with the fire chief, take it up with the medical director, but that's our policy. Uh, and I, I find it hard to believe that uh, in that kind of situation, there'd be any further um, discussions with the individual. Now you maybe have an issue with the with the organization and then, you know, let the politicians figure that out. Again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the fact that that uh, you're, you've got a guy you now, is he facing criminal charges? He or she, are they facing criminal charges or are they disciplinary, well, EMS disciplinary? It's EMS discipline. He'll lose his sort of, he'll, he'll, he's a paramedic. He'll lose that, but they want him to plead guilty to wrongful death um, yeah. or they'll find him guilty of wrongful death. So that will have consequences <laughs> if it's criminally sued. Criminally? No, 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 no as, a, as an EMS negligence matter. But, but once you're found guilty, yes, it's a much lower standard of care, right? Sure. But yes, still, sure. these things tend to domino, right? Some yeah. lawyer is going to pick oh, up absolutely. on it. And be like, absolutely. No. Uh, well, I think you know, from, from a personal experience, years ago when I was a paramedic and we had a shooting. And so we were told to stand by. We're in the county. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they had those 2.4 police officers for you know, like 100,000 square miles. We knew that the cops weren't going to show up. And so... Um, we ended up sitting, waiting for them to show got on the radio. And they said, well, they're 20 minutes out. This guy's got a gunshot wound to the chest. So my partner and I, you know, even though we had a policy to stand by, I think, and we were fairly confident that the shooter was not in the area. Uh, we went in and then, you know, grabbed and threw him in the back of the eight medic unit and then drove away um, to a fire station. And we treated him there and then took him to the hospital. We got call on the carpet from the fire chief. He said, you know, what the hell are you doing? We spent $100,000 training you clowns. You guys go in in a gunshot scenario where you're told to stand by. Um, and we got, you know, we got a discipline out of it. Well, every, the guy was grateful because he lived. So he every Christmas, he'd bring us a bottle of whiskey, which, of course, the fire chief would take because we we're too young to drink it, according to him. And um, but I think that, you know, there has to be some. And I know we, you know, policies are black and white. There are law and all that, you know, stuff that we always talk about. But I think two things. One is there has to be some room for a decision-making process for people that are actually on the scene. And I think Kurt talked about that. And we have to train people to recognize what, you know, what the outcomes could be. The second thing we haven't documented is we need to document the hell out of this thing because you know it's going to go bad. You know, like your your case, uh, Brad, and the cases that we see, um, you know, all over the country where, you know, fire and uh, EMS stands by and, and a patient outcome is bad and or they they touch the patient and they don't treat them because they think, you know, he's intoxicated or on drugs and they just let the police have him and, and he dies. And so I think we need to be un, be aware that there has to be some personal decision making process in your policy. And second, you need to document it because, as you said, you know, these things may not come to fruition legally until two or three years later. And again, collective memory is not all that good. So, right. and, and it's funny you say that because these charges that I'm talking about have been filed three years almost after the date. Yeah. Three years, we get a call. Hey, by the way, you got a hearing coming up. Um, so Kurt, I have this next question for you, which I really love. Um, so, but what if we have guns? What if we're allowed to carry on duty or volunteers who carry on duty and we can protect ourselves and we're allowed to carry on duty? Let's say there's a policy that says you can carry if you have the right to do so. And, you know, we're armed. Shouldn't we be able to go in and, you know, okay, give me the patient? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. Um, and, and, uh, you know, as, as a card carrying Patriot, uh, level member of the NRA, uh, I'm pro gun as, as I, I think both of you are John, maybe a little bit less than Brad, but no, uh, no, 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 let's not uh, go there. All right. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. I, I didn't know if the, you know, the, uh, the political winds up there might've been affecting your uh, sanity, but at any rate, um, that if you if you are carrying that gun should not see the light of day. Um, right. If it sees the light of day, um, your life will never be the same um, whether you use it or not. Um, it's got to be a life or death situation, and you don't want to go looking for a life or death situation simply because you're armed. Um, we're not the army. We're not uh, a SWAT team that goes looking for. Uh, people with guns. We don't have that kind of training. 
Um, and I, I think that uh, I, I really um, value my right to carry. And, and I certainly would not want to jeopardize that by um, what in hindsight might be a poor decision. And, and so I, I don't think we should change our behavior in the least simply because we're armed. And, and you know, I give that jokingly, but I don't because, mm. you know, there is the mentality of the person that says, I'm going to pull my gun and I'm going to go rescue well, that person you know out what? of there. You know what? I mean, we've got police officers that are volunteer firefighters. OK. Um, and uh, so certainly someone with that level of skill, certainly someone who's got SWAT training, maybe a former um you know, uh, special forces, a member who's got that kind of uh, expertise. Um, that's one thing, but somebody who thinks that they have that kind of expertise right. and has never, never, never served a day in, in the military, uh, and, um, never, never worked as a, a police officer and doesn't have that kind of training. Um, they'd be looking for trouble, unfortunately. So I, I, my policy would be if you're armed, Pretend you're not armed right up until the point where it's life and death. You're, you know, you're confronted with deadly force and now you have to respond with deadly force. But you don't go looking, you don't go purposefully into a deadly force situation simply because you're armed. Uh, that's that's me. That's my advice. And, and you know, it's funny because active shooter scenarios, right? We know EMS other than tactical EMS. Right. Where they're going in trained, having practiced, they're equipped. They're they may be armed and trained, but they right. got to be trained. Right. And they go in pursuant to a real, you know, structured program. But I could think of like the active shooter side where generally we accept the fact there's a lot of people in there who are shot and need immediate EMS attention. But we're staging. Right. We're staging where it's safe. And in that situation, we're not running in yet. When it's the single ambulance called, right, or a single fire engine called to a dangerous scene and we don't go in or we back out. Now, John, let's talk about public perception. How would you handle, because you know this is going to be, you know, on TV, the EMTs, firefighters who run into fire, you know, didn't come into our building. Maybe it's a racial area, right? Uh, maybe it's a heavily African-American area where people might claim a bias. Maybe it's a heavily Hasidic area. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? But it's a heavily Hispanic, whatever it is, where people say, oh, you don't want to go in because um, how would you publicly handle this? And, and I don't mean as a public media, how would you publicly handle this to defuse a potential lawsuit, which is inevitably coming? Well, the um, as you know, there will be a plethora of cameras out there recording our every move and our every non-move. And so, I, I you know, it's basically um, and I know that, you know, unreasonable people don't listen to reason. So to trying to reason with somebody saying we're out here because of, of you know, it's a hostile situation. There's shooters inside. Um, you know, we don't want to create any more casualties than we have to. I think making the basic explanation is going to be as probably as good as you're going to get because the, the crowd or the public or whoever's, you know, kind of urging you on to do your job um, is going to kind of whip up a frenzy back here that, you know, how come you're not running in and doing that sort of stuff? And I think that, and again, this is goes back to the training part. I think part of the training, and I know that, and I, you know, I hopefully we'll get to the Elijah McClain um, ketamine issue. It's chaotic. And I don't think we train our people for chaos. You know, we, we train our people to be in control, to go in, manage control of the situation, resolve the situation, put the fire out, save the patient, stuff like that. We're not chaos managers. And so I think one of the shortcomings is that we need to probably do more as we deal with hostile situations and crowds and those sorts of things. And I, and I know that, um, you know, there's, you know, when people watch the fire shows on TV and the police shows on TV, there's two dis distinct sort of um, modes of operation. One is, you know, if you're a, on a cop show, you're in busting butt, you know, pulling guns and shooting people. If you're on the fire side, it's a little bit more reserved as as we go, we'll do the fire, we do the accidents, we do the rescue, we do the EMS calls. But as soon as the gunshots start firing, we're hauling, right? So we're behind our apparatus, we're hunkering down in a ditch. I mean, it's not that yeah, as Kurt said, we're not trained to, you know, to, to, to mitigate those sort of situations. We, we depend on other people. 
And so I think as, so, if, you know, if you and I, Brad, were on the scene and people were urging us to win, you know, you make one statement, you say, this is what, you know, unfortunately we don't want to win, create more casualties. Uh, we're going to wait for, you know, other people to get here and then don't argue with people, you know, because it's going to get recorded. And again, um, you know, you're going to be on the media for sure that you refuse to go in and, you know, what, what the hell are we paying all this tax dollars for? And, you know, we'll get all that sort of public backlash. But it's better that we can see that on TV tonight as opposed to being one of the victims that, you know, we may get shot. And that's I'm not interested in, you know, sailing in harm's way. And I've been in harm's way and, and I know that you guys have as well. So we, we get it. So to so to bring this part and to a conclusion, transition a little bit to the assisting EMS. And we'll try to keep that short to 15 minutes, it, which I know we could do hours on this next topic. But I think the short is, do we all agree, really what Kurt said, policy and train, policy and train, policy and train, right? A policy without training is, is meaningless. Um, right. But actually have realistic scenarios where you put people in, you know, a tabletop exercise. Here's what you see. What do you do, right? Starting maybe with... Um, okay, you've received an order to stage, but people are yelling, help, help, help. What do you do? Right. And the short is follow your orders. Um, so I see, I love live things because you get the dogs, you get everything. Um, so so <laughs> I, I just, I'll, I'll mute my mic. That's okay. So um, let's go to John now. Let's transition. And the transition is a good one because now the police call you in, right, to a situation. I'm going to be very specific with the situation. The police call you in. They have an unruly patient. They've got them physically subdued. The patient's either a threat, according to the police, a threat to themselves or a threat to the police, right? Either one. And the police say, sedate them. Ketamine's our friend today. I really don't think it is. But, right, send that patient down the K-hole and, you know, let's, let's sedate them. So John, and, and we've seen this, right? We, we've seen this a number of times, very famously. Sometimes it results in a death. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it, it, it results in a lawsuit. Um, and we, we, if you watch Kurt and my show, to the viewers here, every Monday at 1, we cover these types of cases almost every week, right? Ketamine administration. But John, I want to get to the very controversial topic, right? Let's talk about the one, right? Let's talk about ketamine administration on that one day, and we'll let you give the backdrop. Well, the background is, is uh, if we're talking about the Aurora, Colorado case, where the young black man was <clears throat> kind of cruising down the street, and there was a complaint that there was a weird something going on. Police get there, they said, do uh, this kid is 100, about 140 pounds, which is 70 kilograms, uh, kind of a slight individual. Had him in a chokehold, apparently had him subdued. Paramedics get there. Um, he was still struggling. <clears throat> I think a lot of it had to do with asphyxia. And so they said, you know, um, you need to provide a sedative in order to, you know, make him more manageable. And they, as we all know, that they overdosed him on ketamine, uh, created a huge liability for the city of Colorado or of uh, Aurora. Um, so three police and two paramedics um, got indicted. I think the outcomes for the police and the paramedics are well known <clears throat> right now, but it set up this whole controversy, I think, nationally about if we, uh, if, is ketamine the right drug to use for um, uh, sort of sedating a patient and are other better medications out there that have less lethal uh, outcomes. And so for, for me, um, I think from a two perspectives, one from a medical perspective, I think, um, you know, they obviously overdosed, you know, this young man, which is proven, uh, I think, in testimony and, and records is that they were just, um, you know, more is not better. I think we have uh, sometimes if you give more lidocaine or more morphine or more whatever, you know, the outcomes are better. And that's that's not true. And we saw that in this particular case. I think the other part is um, from a uh, medical uh, perspective and, a, and an operational perspective, you know, my stance is um, don't let the police dictate your medical care. And I think that's been repeated in several other uh, presentations is that, you know, we need to go in and make an independent evaluation of what's going on and treat the patient. And, I, and so I think the issue is that, and again, it goes back to policy. So the medical policy for using ketamine is whatever it is, you know, milligrams per kilogram. And so, and then, and then the scenario when you use it, you know, there's certain scenarios and when you would use it. 
And certainly, um, you know, following those particular medical protocols, um, I think is warranted, of course, that sort of protects us from a liability. The other is that sort of what we talked about in the last session was that sort of the pre-training that goes on when we deal in chaotic situations, because certainly every police fire EMS intervention where the police have control over a patient and they, and they need assistance is that we need to practice that because we're not, to be honest with you, we're not good at it. And I, and I remember in when I, and again, I'll, you know, go back to memory was when I was a paramedic in a, um, in South Tacoma, which is basically a knife and gun club down there. And so it was like a lot of police, a lot of fire, a lot of EMS, a lot of private ambulance company for one guy who was going absolutely crazy because he stole a bunch of veterinarian sedatives. And I, ketamine may have been one of them, but there's a lot of them out there. And it took an entire, you know, engine company, truck company, and two cops to hold the guy down. And, we, you know, you toss him in the back of the car and he kicks all the windows out. And so, you know, do we sedate him at that time? Where he's already preloaded with whatever he's taking. And I, and I think, you know, to protect himself and patients, we did, you know, use a few medications on him and subdued him. But the, the, the lesson was we didn't kill him. You know, we could have. Um, but, you know, it was that sort of more is better sort of formula. And, he, and eventually he's, he was subdued. Retrospectively, if you like, take a look at it in today's environment, I think we're probably less likely to um, use those sedatives and hypnotics uh, that we have in our drug case on patients because people look at the Elijah McLean case as, you know, we don't want this to go bad, but we want to make sure that we protect the patient. That's priority. And then ourselves. And then, you know, there's going to be legal fallout from it. And so we just need to make sure that, again, we, we did the right thing. So, Kurt, let's talk about legal fallout. Um, and we do you do you have uh, for anyone who doesn't go to Kurt's blog? Um, mm-hmm. So, right. So fire law blog. If you don't go to that, you're missing out on a database of tens of thousands of cases that mm-hmm. you can easily search by keyword and pull up things like ketamine, right? I know because even I do it when I'm writing lectures and, you know, doing some research. Um, and have you tracked how many ketamine police assist type cases there have been? I, I do have ketamine. I have ketamine as a category. I could query it while we're talking if you want, maybe during the next, well, will you get John on there? I'll, I'll query how many ketamine cases, but I do have, I have the number of uh, police um, involvement cases. Oh, let's and go there. Right now, right now, I added two more, so I got to add two to this, but uh, 144 cases where police and police I'm sorry, 144 cases where firefighters or fire departments were sued um, over an incident involving either police apprehension or a mental health emergency where police were on the scene. But we've got both police and fire dealing with that kind of scenario. So 144, um, that my earliest case in my database is 1813. So from 1813 to 2016, 2016 being an important date because that's where we start to see a huge increase in, and it's also uh, the 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 year that Michael um, Michael Brown, uh, you know, was was killed or died. So we've got that sort of uh, as an as a significant date. But between 1813 and 2016, January 1st, 2016, I've got 18 cases. Okay, so that's 202 years, 18 cases. Since Michael Brown, the death of Michael Brown, we've had 126 cases. Wow. Crazy. Okay. Uh, that's eight years, 126 cases. And all of the cases for this year and last year aren't even in yet. I mean, there's still- Yeah, we just had one we covered in. Monday. On, on right. That's, show, what I, that's right? what I mean. That's That was one. I just put another one in last night. So um, there's, you know, there's a, a big increase. And I, I think that there's a couple of lessons to be pulled from this. I'm working on an article on it, but uh, a couple of lessons, w- one of which um, th- there's some scary- there's some disturbing consistency in the allegations in these cases, particularly the more recent ones. Um, and one of them is, um, you know, certainly firefighters being derelict in their duties and not uh, 
attending to the the patients that that kind of goes along with it um but some of the uh the more concerning ones is deliberate indifference which we all know once someone acts with deliberate indifference and someone is killed or injured now we're into a civil rights situation regardless of race or gender it's a civil rights uh issue um but here's the thing falsification of reports mm. it's consistent it's consistent that there's falsification mm. of reports and it's associated with the fact that we've got police body cams. And because the police are on the scene, and folks have got to understand, if there was 20 police officers on the scene, there's 20 police body cams, and plaintiff's and attorneys- And other people with phones. Plus that, absolutely. Right. Plus security cams and, and all the rest of it. But um, we've we if, if we've got a civil rights attorney that gets involved in these cases, and they, they're often suing police departments, civil rights attorneys routinely sue police departments. It's like a cottage industry. And uh, civil rights attorneys have conferences, they write articles, they have books and, and everything. So they share their information. Um, these folks are going to be looking at every frame of those 20 body cam uh, footage. And they probably started out not even looking at firefighters. I would say prior to Michael uh, Michael Brown and, and some of the other things, probably didn't even look at firefighters, okay? Somewhere along the line, they realized, hey, let's pay attention to the firefighters because they're on the scene here. They have a duty to the patient. Um, and what they're seeing is the medics are saying they're doing things like they assess the patient. And many of them, they didn't go anywhere near the patient, okay? Mm -hmm. That they took the patient's... Um, uh, blood pressure uh, and pulse, and all of that is recorded in the report. They didn't go anywhere near the patient. They lied about it, okay? And I, I think that there's some reasons why this is happening, but the bottom line is the falsification of these reports and saying <laughs> you did things when you didn't is gonna be the death knell when it comes to liability. Because you're basically, if you say that you did a patient assessment and the patient was conscious and alert and refused aid, and you didn't go anywhere near the person, you're basically admitting that's what you should have done. That's why you put it in the report. You're saying you did. And now any defense that you had, well, I couldn't because there was too much violence going on. Well, why did you lie about it? Right, right. It, it, you know, you're just in a, you're in a very bad situation when that happens. Right. And I think we've no. seen, was it the George Floyd case? I remember there was like a, a fire captain or an off-duty medic, but it was somebody off-duty saying she, it was a female saying she was trying to get involved and trying to help and, you know, saying she'll right. help and she, right, trying to put herself in there, you know, and I can see that's one thing, right? Yep. Um, it's it's an interesting theme we have because we started on this show with, and this, you know, this episode with, okay, what do you do to keep yourself out of scenes? And are you getting in trouble when you don't want to go out? And now this is the opposite. This is, you're involved. And I wonder if, just like some people run into scenes when they shouldn't because they want to be cops, I wonder if this mentality is trying to endear themselves to the police. Sure, I'll knock that person out for you, cop. Sure, I'll get involved and I'll, you know, I'll lie for you, Mr. Police Officer or Ms. Police Officer, right? It, it seems like there's some something else mentally going on with the EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters who you know, wait in the fire truck for 15 minutes, despite the police maybe calling them over or not even going to check, like, can we come help? We saw that in, you know, another similar instance. Um, we, it seems like the, there's a mentality where they want to support the malicious efforts of certain police officers, right? And cops, you know, if you're listening, we're, we're, we're not assault, assaulting you on this show, right? It's just when there are the bad apples out there, we shouldn't become two of the bunch. And yet I, what I see normally, and I'll bring one up, I see us doing that. So let's go to the, it was a playoff game of the, we'll talk about ketamine. It was a playoff game of, I don't know, hockey, basketball, whatever. Remember this, Kurt? It was only a year ago. And uh, women's there protesting the Roe v. Wade decision and, or, you know, the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And her and another start protesting and yelling and the police uh, subdue them and they're subdued and then paramedics get involved and knock them out, I think, with ketamine. Oh, yeah, that was well, that was the allegation. That was San Francisco. Yeah, I, I do recall that one. Yeah. And, and that's and, the and, allegation, right? But yeah, that's the allegation. But uh, Brad, I've got a case and this I actually titled the case in my blog. I said uh, man bites dog case, oh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. 
because it was a, a person who sued. It was a woman. I believe it was her brother. Might have been a mom for her son. The bottom line is she sued the firefighters and the police because they didn't give ketamine. Okay, <laughs> that this person was out of control. They he needed to be subdued and suffered unnecessarily because the medics didn't. So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Okay, I do have the the data um, now. This is civil suits. There are 19 civil suits out of all those cases. And obviously all of those, I, I didn't run the dates, but none of them were before 2016. Uh, I can say that with some certainty. So we're talking about 19 cases involving ketamine, four additional cases involving sedatives that are not specific to ketamine. So wow. total of 23 there. And um, we also have the one criminal charge also against the folks, uh, criminal charges, manslaughter charges against the folks in Aurora. We, we are definitely, right? No question from what you just said. We are definitely seeing a significant uptick in cases, oh, yeah. right? And and is it is it because there's more lawsuits or as I'm guessing, because we're doing more stupid things? I, I don't think, uh, here's what I, this is my you know, conclusion, okay, um, that there's not more lawsuits. Police are getting sued. Police, uh, 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 an equivalent police department to a fire department, same population, same same city and all that, they get sued about 100 times for every time a fire department gets sued, okay? Right. That comes from people I know that are risk managers that uh, work for insurance companies that insure municipalities, but they're saying somewhere around 101. I think even if you go 10 to one, that's that still is too high, okay? Yeah. But the bottom line is police departments get sued way more than we do. They have always gotten sued way more than us. I don't think the number of suits is increasing, but I think the targeting of firefighters and fire departments in these same suits now, it's, it's on the radar screen of these civil rights attorneys. They know when they're sitting down with a client, maybe it might be the, the surviving spouse or it may be the parents of someone uh, who has uh, has passed away and they're looking for somebody to, to focus the blame on uh, and they start going through these uh, police body cams, which are public record. And that, again, they're literally going through them frame by frame. And then they look at the EMS report and say, wait a minute, he said he took his pulse. He didn't go within 20 feet of the right. patient. How did he right. take his pulse? Okay. Uh, now they've got a new defendant uh, to name. EMS to me, John, you, you tell me, but EMS versus fire, EMS is so much easier. And I will tell you why, because there's rules about how you treat patients. You follow the protocol. We don't have that same exact situation mm -hmm. in fire, right? We, yeah, we right. I mean, we have we concepts, have we have no, ideas, right? right? First yeah. engine hits a hydrant, first truck does a search. We have concepts, but we yeah. don't have the strict protocols that you follow them or you don't. And mm -hmm. it may be on the EMS side, that's what should keep us out of trouble, isn't it? Well, it should keep us out of trouble. I think the problem that we have in spite of the protocols that we, you know, we train to, we live by, um, you know, every time you do a recertification, you know, they go through those particular protocols and they're, and they're fairly stringent. And, you know, when it comes to cardiac arrest or it comes to anaphylactic shock or it comes down to treat bleeding or, you know, a cardiac arrest is pretty much, you know, dictated by the American Heart Association every five years, you know, CPR, no breathing, breathing, no CPR. I mean, it's like insane. So it, it changes so much. I think we need to, you know, understand that protocols are created um, pretty much to, to, you know, kind of taking a look at, you know, what's going on in our community. So it's pretty black and white protocol wise. I think, and, and again, I go, I'll go back to the chaotic side. There are really no protocol for managing chaos, right? Yeah. And so a fire is nothing but chaos, right? A, a rescue is, you know, pretty, you know, cut and dry, you know, setting up the rigging, making sure there's safety. We got people all tied in the harness, stuff like that. Fires are like animal house, you know, it's like crazy. <laughs> that's but, that's why we like it so much. <laughs> and it gives us a lot of opportunity to do a lot of different things because the dynamic aspect of a fire. And so, you know, even though we may train to do a certain way, we try something else and actually put the fire out. We'll go back to the training division and say, hey, you know, this worked pretty good. I think we ought to start training on using this particular method to, you know, put these particular fires out. I think in EMS, it's pretty, it's cut and dry on how we treat patients. It's cut and dry on the medications that we use. It's cut and dry on, 
even the response times, you know, we want you, you know, four minutes, six minutes, eight minutes, you know, 20 minutes, you know, whenever you get there in remote scenario, um, everything's sort of programmed. And I, and we, and we train our people to follow those particular programs, protocols where we, where we come unglued is essentially is when we're in these situations and we're not in control, right? The police are in control. And I love the cops and thank God we have them. Um, but you're right. Uh, I think one of your comments is there's, you know, some bad actors out there um, that kill patients, you know, kill people. And then our obligation is to try to patch the patient all up and get them to the hospital to survive if we if we get involved. And and because we're brothers in blue or sisters in blue, it's like we want to be part of the team. And I think when they say sedate this guy or sedate this woman, then we'll do it. We want to do it. Right. And it falls out of protocol because we don't have it. We have a protocol in, in ordinary situations. We don't have protocols for subduing people that are in cop. Um, well, John, I think I think the politics of this have taken on another dimension and we're moving away from the science because, right. you know, we, it sh- sh- we should be looking at the science. What does the data say? What's the percentage of people who by sedating them, they're less likely to get hurt? They're less likely to be asphyxiated because we can stop yeah, wrestling with them. What does the science say? Not what are the politics, not not what do the optics say? What does the science say? Is it safe for medics outside of a hospital to be administering ketamine? That's a fair question. But I think sometimes the politics, um, people become blinded to the issue. And Brad and I were looking at a complaint the other day, and it was like ketamine is the equivalent of uh, suppressing minorities, uh, that it's a tool to yeah. suppress minorities. That that's crazy. Let's let's look at the science, okay, and and look at the data and put the politics on the back burner. Let's figure this out. As, well, I think one of the as, things I think sorry, the optics that you're talking about mm-hmm. is that after the patient is subdued, they're thrown in the back of the ambulance and transported somewhere. They're not left on location. You're yeah. not tossed in the back of a police yeah, car. Yeah, somebody's got to watch their airway too. I mean, this isn't, it isn't like, you know, you just, you know, now, oh, now it's all over and we just transport them. We, we got to be monitoring the airway. And I think that's a contributing factor too. Well, and yeah, and, and we, you know, in transport, we kill patients too. You know, we, we tie it, we hog time, we put them on their face. I mean, how many, the, the Illinois that, case with yeah. those two paramedics? I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we do that's not in the public purview. That doesn't lend itself to good patient care. Well, let's let's I think do the starting them out with ketamine is a bad way to go because yeah. they're already compromised with you know probably a crushed trachea or injury mm-hmm. to the trachea from the chokeholds, and then we add insult to injury by you know using a, sed- a sedative as a as a medication to subdue somebody who's already subdued. So let and- me let me wrap this whole thing up with another scenario. It's not going to be a quick. Uh, end to the topic. But I don't know if, John, you saw, I sent it to Kurt one day. It was on the news. It was in Rochester, New York, where they're already having enough problems with other issues. But there's a, it was a AMR ambulance. There's a female inside in the back. The patient who's having difficulty breathing, they're en route to the hospital, I think. They, um, the guy is saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, but starts becoming somewhat, well, very agitated and let's, let's say somewhat violent. And you, that's the story you get. Now, the police arrive because they call it, they pull over, right? The police arrive and the police say, and, and the, now where it's on body cam and you see the person sitting on the stretcher, you see the woman, the EMT paramedic there, and hopefully I'm doing this justice in the description. Mm-hmm. And he's not attacking her, but you can hear her say things, defensive things to him. So she kicks him out of the ambulance. The police officer also kicks him out of the ambulance, puts him on the sidewalk to wait for another ambulance, which doesn't, I I don't know why the cop just didn't get in the ambulance or take him in the police car and keep going either way, but they put him on the side waiting for another ambulance. I don't know with what, six men? Like what, what's the issue that you're looking for? And he dies, right? Uh, A a short while later, I think 20 minutes or so later, he's dead on the sidewalk. Why he's there that whole time, I have no idea. But let's talk about that scene, at least from the point of 
okay, you've got a patient one who's sitting up. You're not going to subdue them and you're not going to hit them with ketamine, right? Because one person isn't going to do that. The person feels unsafe, so they pull over. I didn't notice the driver come around in the video for two people to help, but what do you do in that scenario? We'll end on this scenario, but it's a perfect wrap up. When danger comes to you, how do you handle it? Because these people from AMR are persona non grata in the community. The mayor went after them. Everybody went after them. I'm not justifying anything they did other than maybe pulling over and waiting for the police. After that, I think it all goes to hell. But whoever wants to handle it, what would have you done and what should we do? Yeah, I, I'll go back to what we started. Uh, what, is, what does the policy say? When a medic is assaulted, what is what is the proper procedure for that medic to follow? Does the fact that a patient assaulted you give you the justification to stop the transport, stop treatment? Okay. And almost now we can almost get back into a little bit of a ketamine discussion. And I am not a paramedic. I don't profess to be. Uh, I think my opinion, many paramedics think they're doctors, which I want them to be confident. Not doctors, in what God, God, they skip doctors. We want God. them to be confident. We want them to be confident in their skills, but we don't want them to be doing things uh, because they're things that doctors do and they can, you know, a doctor administers ketamine. He knows biologically, chemically what reactions are going on and what to look for to guide them. That's why they use ketamine a lot more in ERs and, you know, in hospitals than they do out in the street. So, but point being, there are things that we expect a medic to do. No one should, no medic should be subjected to physical assaults the entire way to the ER. And especially a female who may be be being grabbed or touched inappropriately or whatever. And I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying Right. What what we've got to we've got to have a policy that addresses that and, um, uh, you know, addresses it appropriately for the patient and for the medic. Um, and, and here's the thing. If we don't have that policy, then guess what? As the boss of that AMR unit, it's on you right. <laughs> because right. you should have right. thought you should have thought about that. You should have had a policy. You should have had your people trained to the policy. Otherwise, whatever happens is, you know, you you let them figure it out. Well, this is how they figured it out. And it didn't really work out very well for you. So right. that's on you. But again, I think that's that's the solution. And, and you know, pick your poison. It, it, it's OK for her to just say we're not transporting them. Fine. Uh, say you're going to transport them anyway, but you're going to get police assistance or other people. That's fine. Follow the policy. Yeah, so, John, I'm going to hand this back to you as we wrap it up. I, my answer to that would be the police should get in yeah. and you shouldn't move without the police. But let me ask about this. What if she says, I'm not taking them. We don't have another ambulance. Stick them in the stick them in the back of the police car. You haul them ass to the right. Stick them in the back of the cage. You take them there. And because now we're going to have a patient abandonment issue, right. right? But would what what option do they have? Look, it's not easy to get an ambulance just to back you up all the time. And so now we're sitting on the side. Now the person calms down. What do we say? Okay, now that you're calm, we'll go. Maybe that's an option. But you're supposed to remove yourself from danger. So what would you do, John? Would you have them? I'm not defending or prosecuting anyone, but would you proceed? Would you tell the cop to get in? Would you, well, let's take that off table because that's the obvious one that should have happened, right? right? Or would you put right. them back in the cop car? Because we see cops all the time get in trouble. I grabbed the baby, went to the hospital, right? With the baby because no ambulance is arriving. What are you telling people to do? What should the policy say? Well, first of all, there should be nobody assaulted in the back of the ambulance if you strap your patient in according to protocol, right? <laughs> Good you point. got shoulder straps, I got Good chest point. straps, I got waist straps. I mean, I like it. the I like patient it. should be immobile. However, if this guy had respiratory distress, she, they're probably sitting up, they're not restrained, got some oxygen on, yep. and all of a sudden he, he may have become hypoxic and become abusive and you know physically assaultive and those sorts of things, which sort of puts you in the scenario that Brad's talking about. So you have somebody short of breath, probably hypoxic, is angry, and now he's starting to assault the provider. So um, you know, again, there's you can't write enough policies. That's the first mm-hmm. thing for every scenario. But uh, I think in your self-preservation policy is you stop the ambulance, rightly, rightfully so, 
Ask your driver to come around, bring the keys with him or her, who's ever driving. It's a lesson learned. People have stolen the ambulances before. Everybody's in the back and the patient's jumping in the front. And so you see that one coming. And then you you know, you call for assistance, attempt to de de-escalate, which is the big word now, and um, you know, see how things you know work out. I would never abandon a patient on the side of the roadway. There's so much liability. Um, you know, abandonment you may wander out in traffic, get run over by a car. I mean, there's lots of different things. I think the other scenario is that, and I've, and I've seen this in our own County is the police are reluctant to get involved in patient care. You know, they don't want to be transporting patients to the hospital. They'll accompany you. Right. I think there's more success in having the, the police officer jump in the back of the rig and maybe have somebody else, you know, another cop drive or something you know, that at least gets the patient to the hospital. And so, but abandoning the patient on the side of the roadway is, is a no-go from the start and should never enter any, in, into any, anybody's mind because of these examples that we've had. The other, the other part of this is, um, you know, adequate preparation of the patient before they go. So, you know, they did just load and go or did they assess his respiratory status, O2 sats? I mean, all of the little toys that we have nowadays, you know, doing all the diagnostics. I think we we don't we probably don't prepare these sort of patients good enough, but retrospectively we go well we should have done this or we should have done that, and and so we won't get into that sort of scenario. And so I think that's a good teaching experience for other you know people coming down the pike as as providers as to you know in this scenario. Now I know that going back to my Navy days when I was stationed in Bremerton. Washington, we used to have Cadillac ambulances, which were like horrible to transport patients, but oh my God, could they go fast, right? And, <laughs> and so that's we've all had, important. <laughs> that's the important part. And so we would just drive faster. You know, you'd have your corpsman attendant in the back getting a crap beat out of him by some Marine that's intoxicated. And then you're <laughs> driving in the front and you're going like as fast as that freaking thing could go, which is well over 120 miles an hour. So you get <laughs> to a hospital and then everybody jumps out and let the security guard and the doctors and the nurses jump in the back of the ambulance and take the guy out. That's my Navy solution. And it was a great memory. Well, I, I will end with this memory of mine. It's a radio show. All the other ones tell stories. Well, I want to say this, you know, I want to plug Steve Hamilton who does another fire engineering show. And Steve, I had out to my conference. He presented on um, EMS and safety and he had some great tips. And I, I really think anyone, if you're looking to start creating policies, contact Steve Hamilton. I mean, he had stuff I never thought of. Like you go to the door and you take the blue bag or, or we call the blue, your EMS bag, you know, keep it between you and the patient and make sure you have one hand free at all time. And so when the door opens, there's something between you and, and the person answering the door, right? So they can't grab you or something like that. So he has all those little tips. I think is great. I'd say for policies, going back to what Kurt said, we've got to start and end with policies and training. Contact Steve Hamilton. He's got some neat stuff, does a neat training. I will say, I just because we can tell stories for a moment, I remember um, I was working Lifeline Ambulance in Boston, like 1989, and a big guy, I think his name was Dan Carlo. He's a massive weightlifting guy. He's driving. I'm in back. He's senior. And uh, we picked up this guy, unconscious, unresponsive. He was under a car, and he uh, must have breathed Freon. He was a mechanic, and he, it knocked him out. They think Freon. All of a sudden, he comes to light while me in the back of the ambulance, he, he wakes up, pops up like a bat out of hell, right? Kind of like that Narcan morphine waking. And he starts beating the royal hell out of me. Um, this is YouTube. I think I can say anything I want. But uh, he starts beating the royal hell out of me. And I'm screaming and screaming like, help. I mean, the guy is strong as hell. And I'm the problem is he was like 180 years old. I mean, this guy's beating up a you know 19-year-old. And Dan Carlo comes. And so I think he took one of the approaches that I think the fire service will take. He laughed at me for five minutes as the guy beat the crap out of me. So that's a reasonable way to deal with this. Anyway, on that note, I just want to thank everybody. And uh, hopefully you learned a lot from us on behalf of John Murphy, Kirk Barone, and the ever-missing Chip Comstock. I want to thank everybody for joining us on Spire Service Court Video. Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes.
To get free grant assistance, visit magnagrip.com. IFSTA is dedicated to advancing firefighting techniques and safety through the creation of our manuals, instructor resources, and student study materials. Our high-quality, technically accurate, and affordable training content has made us a fire service leader. Visit us at ifsta.org for more information. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.